Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome! I just spoke with Barbara Ambrose about her recent book, Bones of Contention, Animals and Religion in Contemporary Japan, that was published with the University of Hawaii Press in 2012. Now, this is a book that's potentially going to be of interest to a wide range of readers coming from a wide range of fields, and we're going to come to this study with an interest in various aspects of what Ambrose is doing in the book. On the one hand, the book is very firmly rooted in religious studies and the history and ethnography of religion in situating a story about pet mortuary services, practices, and notions in contemporary Japan within a larger story about changing attitudes toward and perceptions of religion within Japan more broadly, and this is a kind of a modern history of this, but also within a more global framework, as we see attitudes towards spirituality, toward afterlives, toward beings of all sorts in in this context, being transformed in light of and through changing media that are allowing a kind of global communication around these issues, like the internet, internet chat rooms, publications that are circulating um, widely, images that are circulating globally. So it's very firmly a story about religion and religious studies. It's also, on the other hand, or on another hand, a story that's very firmly rooted in a history and ethnography of attitudes toward animals. And so Ambrose gives a really interesting and really useful capsule history of changing perceptions of and attitudes toward animals, not only um, through pre-modern, early modern, and modern Japan, but also um, in a focused way, in a comparative context, with other early modern and modern societies. So we've got uh, really interesting and important religious studies components to this study, animal studies components. It's also very much a story about the importance of place and space and different ways of conceptualizing animals, but very specifically pets, not just animals in general, but pets specifically, within a necrogeographic landscape, a landscape of death in various manifestations, in cemeteries, in the home, above ground and below, within buildings and beyond, and in in different ways, very close, intimate, physical proximity with humans. So it's a wide-ranging study, but also very focused. It's got full of fascinating stories, really interesting accounts, and I had a really good time talking with Barbara about it, so I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Barbara Ambrose about her new book, Bones of Contention, Animals and Religion in Contemporary Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Barbara, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for making the time to interview me. <laughs> of course. And we I should say, for listeners, we're here at the National Humanities Center, so thank you, National Humanities Center, as well, for giving us the <laughs> space to talk. So, Barbara, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? How did you get interested in religious studies of Japan? What brought you to that field? 
that's actually somewhat serendipitous. Um, I started out as an English lit major in college, and um, next door to the English and American literature department was the Japanese studies department. And I had a lot of friends who were doing Japanese studies, and I thought what they were doing was really, really interesting. And um, and some of them are double majors. And um, I finished my master's in English Lit, and then I decided, you know what, now's the time to switch. So I switched to Japanese studies, and I'd also gotten very interested in Buddhism. I started reading a lot on my own. And I switched and uh, started a graduate program in East Asian Studies. And, and that's kind of how I got interested in East Asia and in and, and religious studies. That's actually really interesting because it sounds like even in your personal narrative space, sort yeah. of built spaces and proximity is important. And, and as we'll see um, in the course of our conversation, that's also a central theme in the book. That's right. So the book looks at um, norms and practices of pet mortuary services in contemporary Japan. Can you talk a little bit about, well, and there's also some historical accounts as well. And so it situates contemporary practices within a larger, not just historical, but also global framework for understanding how we come to the kinds of practices and notions that we see in modern contemporary Japan. So given that, can you situate this within the larger context of your work and the larger trajectory of your work. How did you come to this particular project um, given your previous work? My previous work um, often focused on issues of, of place and space. I was particularly interested in, in pilgrimage and sacred space. And um, when I started this project, um, I guess the uh, academic um, starting point was that I was teaching a class on contemporary Japanese religions, and we were talking about memorial rituals for aborted fetuses, stillborn children, um, etc. And they're called in Japanese, they're called musical kuyo. So um, one of the articles mentioned memorial rights for animals, and I thought that was so interesting, but I knew nothing about it. And so I started Googling it, and all these... Um, references would pop up. Uh, tens of thousands at the time. Now I think there's probably over a million references to pet memorial rights. So that was sort of one uh, uh, point where I was really thinking, oh, wow, this really deserves more academic attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing was that when I started thinking about it, I had actually had uh, memorial rituals for one of my pets. When I was living in Japan, I had parakeets, and one of them died while I was there. And um, uh, the vet that I took the uh, the bird to um, offered uh, a, a variety of services then of for cremation and then also interment at a Buddhist temple. And I thought that was kind of uh, unusual and, and novel, so I thought, oh, why don't I just do that? Um, and then I really didn't do anything about it. And as I started researching this topic, I went back to the temple and I saw where my bird had been interred. So that was a, sort of a strange uh, personal connection. And the other thing was that at the time, this is, has nothing to do with academics. At the time uh, when I started working on this book, I had recently adopted two dogs. So I was thinking a lot about dogs and human-animal relationships. And that also got me interested in the topic of human-animal relationships, which I had previously not really worked a lot on. So when I first started working on this topic, 
I wrote what is now Chapter 4, and that um, really looks at spatial arrangements uh, or what some people call sort of the necrogeography <laughs> of um, mortuary spaces um, that involve both uh, animals and humans, pets and humans. Mm-hmm. And that brought together my interest in a space and place and in, in a human-animal relationships. And I thought it was very interesting to look at um, how humans would try to um, mimic some of their relationships in life in, in mortuary spaces. So that's how I really started the topic. It became a, a later chapter in the book, but that was really how I got into the topic. Great, thank you. And the the Homer the Parakeet story is actually yeah. right in the introduction, <laughs> so listeners right. um, can find that there. Now, the book is specifically not about animal memorial rights, but about pet memorial rights. And you're arguing here that it's precisely their hybrid status, their liminal state between the animal and the human that makes them so interesting. And the consequences of that and the different ways that that refracts through the different kinds of space, both conceptual and physical, that you're talking about in the book will come up later on in our conversation and is very much a major theme of the book. So the research for the book, as you mentioned here, extended from the spring of 2006 through 2010, and it encompassed a wide range of different kinds of work with different kinds of sources. You mentioned ethnographic fieldwork at zoos and aquaria, participant observation at over 30 pet cemeteries, mostly in the Tokyo metro area, but also some beyond interviews and work on internet sources, et cetera, et cetera. And so we'll we'll talk about some of that as we go on. So as we get into the book itself and um, in the introduction, you mentioned that um, there's a particularly there's a particularly interesting way that the demographics of this phenomenon get skewed toward um, el- sort of middle-aged women um, who are particularly involved in these practices. So that's one of the things I want to start off by um, asking you about. Most of the, or many of the interviews were with middle-aged women. What was it about that demographic that made it so important um, to this study? Um, I think there are several uh, issues that... Um I want to raise my answer here. One is that uh, I think there's a certain kind of stereotype that people have in their minds when they think about animal memorial rituals or pet keeping in general. Mm-hmm. And one is, think for example, in 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 the United States, you have this concept of the of the crazy cat lady, <laughs> and and often this is a, I think this assumption it goes back actually quite a, a long time historically that uh, the people who carry most about their pets and have the most intimate relationships uh, um, with their pets are women who are middle-aged or older, and uh, they're the most likely to also um, uh, grieve very much when um, the animal dies. Mm -hmm. And I think the same kind of stereotype also exists in people's minds in Japan. And pet keeping, I think, uh, and since the... Uh, I should explain that in the in the late starting in the in the 1990s, Japan has really expe- experienced a pet boom. We also see this in other industrialized uh, countries around the globe, um, but in Japan, there's been a really tremendous uh, boom in pet ownership. Um, and there's a somewhat mistaken assumption that uh, uh, pet ownership um, is particularly common among women, sometimes young women, but also older women. Um, when they actually do studies, they realize it's a lot of families who have children and, and couples who own uh, 
pets. But there's in, in people's minds often there's this assumption that uh, uh, women younger women, but particularly also middle-aged to older women are the ones who own animals and who will engage in these pet memorial rites. Um, what is interesting is that when I spoke to some Buddhist priests who uh, carried out these rituals at the temples or uh, also um, owners of pet memorial services, they would often resist this assumption. And they would argue very strongly, no, this is for everyone, actually, and it's not just these middle-aged to older women. Mm-hmm. When you went to the services during the week, you would um, uh, some of them were held during the week. If there were communal services, um, there would indeed be a larger number of middle-aged and older women. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could probably assume that this was because these were the people who were free to go during the middle of the week. When you went on, on weekends, you would realize that you had a much larger variety of people, men, women, families, older, younger. All the people who were um, working could come on the weekends when they were not working, if it was on a Sunday, for instance. Um, and so I think so, there's something uh, to be said about this assumption that you ha- do have a lot of middle-aged to older women participating in these rituals. But I don't think it's quite as exclusive, and it usually gets a little bit skewed. Now, in my case, what was interesting, though, it is that that demographic of middle-aged women who were particularly easy to talk to because they were often there by themselves. And I found interviewing people that they were often the ones who were the most eager to talk with you and um, who are also the least sort of reticent and shy about talking to somebody like me. Um, and sometimes they were there with friends, but um, many of them, especially during the middle of the week, they weren't there with family and, and focusing very much on say, having a, a family experience, not interested in, in, in talking to an outsider. So I think, uh, unfortunately, then my book is skewed again, but this is for, I think, for a different reason. It's not because they're just, um, because I'm assuming that only middle-aged women uh, perform these rituals. It's, it's just happened that those were the kind of people who I tended to talk to most. I mean, it's interesting because I think one of the really wonderful things about the book is that at various points, and not just in the, in the introduction, but in many of the chapters thereafter, you're very self-reflexive about the practice, about the process of the kind of work that went into the study, I think in really interesting and helpful ways. Um, one of the, an, another thing that's really interesting and that I wanted to ask you about um, is like, you did so many different kinds of work for the book and the process of doing ethnographic field work when you're studying circumstances surrounding death and memorials, that seems to me that it would present for you as a participant observer, as an interviewer, a particularly challenging set of circumstances to work to work in and to work under. So can you talk about that a little bit? Were there any, um, what were some of the particular challenges for you in doing this field work? Do, do any moments or aspects of the work stand out as being worth mentioning in that respect? Um, I think uh, when you look at, um, when I look back at who I actually ended up interviewing, um, these were often people who hadn't lost their pet in the very immediate past. These were usually people where they had lost the pet maybe uh, a few months ago or even a few years ago. Um, And the problem is if they're really wrapped up in their grief, often they didn't want to talk 
it was hard then, unless you knew them previously, it was hard to uh, establish a relationship of trust um, at that moment because, I don't know, um, I think... Um, Let's, let's put it this way. I have one researcher in Japan. Um, uh, he's a really wonderful guy. He, he <laughs> made this comment. Well, you know, when you uh, research Mizukokuyo, so these rights for aborted fetuses and stillborn uh, children, that's so sad. It's so dark. But when you research uh, pet memorial rights, that's so much fun. And I thought, gee, he really hasn't been out wow. in the field. <laughs> yeah, there is something fun and, uh, and kind of campy about it in certain respects. But people really do experience real grief. And so you have to be very, very sensitive uh, and respect people's privacy. So in order to talk to these people, you would have to get permission of the temple. And then you have to get permission of the individual and of or of the family and um, that was somewhat challenging under those circumstances um, and I think sometimes people are kind of protective of when they're talking about the dead and the material culture surrounding death so I think it, it just required sensitivity on regarding how you were uh, going to handle that situation. But uh, fortunately, I was able um, to talk to friends and get introduced uh, to friends of friends. And uh, once people really got interested in the subject, they were often very eager to volunteer um, stories. Uh, that was actually very interesting. Um, when I would tell them what this this the, the subject that I was research, researching, often people would say, oh, yeah, and this happened to me, and this is what I did in that situation. So some of the interviews happened in a very casual manner, and others, when they were really at the site, and especially if they involved people who had just gone through a loss, um, it, it, it was somewhat challenging at, at certain moments. But um, overall, people were extremely generous and, and willing to cooperate. I mean, you, you're mentioning the... Um one of the things that um, is so striking about this problem and the set of problems, mm -hmm. which is the materiality mm -hmm. um, of these processes. So we're not, as becomes really evident as we work through the book, we're not just talking about people's memories of Fido, right? right. We're talking about like containers that have teeth in them because cremains aren't um, ground down in this mm -hmm. context unless you want them to, right? So we're talking about bones, we're talking about altars, we're talking about, um, and this, this comes up very much as a theme in the book, at least for me as a reader, yeah. um, proximity and intimacy in terms of physical space and physical contact in a lot of these cases. So it's not just about, you know, a photograph, which is also a kind of physical thing, right? But it's also very physically intimate um, in terms yes. of how these memories are formed and sustained, right? Yes. And it's very, very intimate. Um, and it's interesting. I think this is something that Pet Memorial writes uh, do share with um, human funerals, um, and this is the sort of this intimate engagement with the with the body. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people coming from, um, to the uh, practice of cremation from a Western background, they assume that it's just like here that you uh, uh, basically a, 
say a, a funeral service will uh, take the body and arrange for the cremation and then all of a sudden at the end of it you receive the urn. Um, this is what happens usually with pet cremations. You just leave the body of your dog or your cat um, with a vet and they magically whisk the body away and then a few days later, uh, 10 days later, uh, you're, you're going to get the urn. And you don't know what happened in the meantime. And the Japanese tradition, as with human funerals, is just a lot more engaged. Um, and there are different levels of engagement that perhaps don't um, exist quite as much in the in the human case, where people are really uh, asked to be present and 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 transfer, for instance, the bones once they've been cremated into the urn. Um, the important bones, and um, in the in the animal case, you can choose to be completely distant and and, and join a um, a joint cremation, for instance, and and drop your dog or a bird off at the vets, as I did when I was there. Just take the bird and have it interred. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, others choose to be very involved in it and and uh, um, participate in rituals that really are very similar to human rituals where you wait during the cremation, so you wait outside and they wait for the bones to actually cool down and then the family will... Um, gather around and two people will move the bones into uh, the urn. And that really um, is a very cathartic moment. Um, people researching human funerals have reported this. Mm -hmm. Some of my friends have uh, done work on, on human funerals. They've reported this when they witnessed it. And um, talking to um, my informants, I also got the sense, and people talked about it as this as being very uh, cathartic. In fact, I talked to one expat um, who was originally from uh, the UK, was living in Japan, married to a Japanese uh, a woman, and um, the family dog died, and they had um, memorial service, a funeral and memorial service for the family dog, and actually they invited other families. So it was a big gathering, probably bigger than in most cases. And he said he was shocked when they were doing the transfer of the bones into the urn that he had just not expected that. But he said ultimately it was extremely cathartic because you're um, really confronting that, um, you're confronting mortality in a very direct way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think uh, a lot of the practices are really um, very, very intimate. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the themes that are coming up um, as you're talking about this speak to some of the major themes that mm -hmm. also recur through the book. The, um, we'll see and as we move through some of the chapters. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the ways or... The appropriateness or not of relating animal remains to human remains, M memorialization of, of uh, rather, forgive me, pet remains mm. to human remains, memorialization of pets to humans mm. versus um, pet remains to other kinds of inanimate materials that mm. are classed as trash. Mm. These actually come up as issues. I mean, these are not, um, mm. they're neither taken for granted mm. as uh, indicative of the way, you know, 
everyone in Japan feels mm-hmm. or should feel, nor are they set in stone. And these very much will come up as issues that decide, um, as we, as we move into the chapters, things like court cases, right. you know, is a, are pet remains more like human remains or more like other kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Are pet memorials more like human memorials or more like other kinds of things? And it's precisely these, the importance of pets as sort of straddling and questioning these boundaries that makes them so interesting here, right? Yes. So we've talked a little bit about um, already the importance of space and place here. And that's one of the themes that comes up in the book repeatedly, in ter- especially in terms of necrogeography mm-hmm. right, and necrolandscapes. So you focus on some questions that emerge from these sets of concepts. And I'll just kind of lay these out here because we'll, we'll come back to these. What spatial arrangements do pet mortuary rituals produce that symbolize and that also help reify or create or problematize human and non-human um, relationships? animal and animals as well. What boundaries, and these include physical, spiritual, and also legal, do pet mortuary rights draw to either contrast species or blur their differences? And how do these rights and these ways of thinking about space either reify or problematize the ontological nature of these categories? So there are a lot of ways in which space and boundaries come up. So as we move further into the book, um, there's a first chapter that I'm not going to really ask you to, um, to talk about um, because I, I would, again, love to take three hours of your time, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take three hours of your time. So there is a chapter that offers an overview of animals in pre-modern Japanese myth, folklore, and religion. And it looks at three major tropes, and I'll just mention this for listeners, um, ways that animals um, emerge in this context as symbols of an, an ideal cosmological order, as animals as subhuman beasts and sort of what that idea or term, uh, set of terms beasts means, and animals as fellow human beings. And one of the things... As fellow living beings. As fellow living beings already (laughs) in the context of, thank you for our conversation, my ontological (laughs) speech boundaries are shifting. So one of the things that um, that comes up in this chapter, I'll just mention, um, that becomes important later on, is that um, you're very clear um, about the fact that we we shouldn't understand Japan as being unique in their attitudes toward relationships with animals or being um, cut off from other, we could call them global, we could call them, you know, whatever, world. Um, I'm, I'm using fake scare quotes um, with all these terms, but um, relationships toward animals. And so what comes up um, in this first chapter in an interesting way is that if you look at the history of modern and contemporary practices, um, and thoughts around animals in particular in Japan, there are lots of ways in which Indian, Chinese, and Japanese thoughts and practices and texts Mm. really help shape um, what's happening in that context and consequences for um, the the modern and contemporary phenomena. Okay, so there's that. And for listeners, it's a great capsule history. It's very assignable. Um, it's, it's, It's good stuff. We move from that to sort of slowly moving our way to the um, the other four body chapters of the text, which move us toward the ethnographic treatments. But before we get to the contemporary ethnography, one of the things that you give us in chapter two is a modern history of mortuary rites in Japan that are not um, that are animals, but that are not devoted to pets. 
So in order to understand what makes pets so special, we need to understand first how to situate them within the larger framework of animals, which is very different from this specific frame, the specific example that we'll talk about. So the chapter offers, among other things, a capsule history of animal memorial rights since their emergence in the early modern era. And it's, it's very interesting stuff. And one of the things that comes up in that history is the importance of, um, of commodification for shaping what happens later. And so the chapter argues that modern animal memorial rituals, and again, I'm specifying animal um, and not pet, and not human, mm-hmm. <laughs> human beings, modern animal memorials are a response to what you're arguing to be the modern commodification and consumption of animals. So this is a large issue and a large um, set of questions, but I would um, just ask you to talk a little bit about that. Can you speak to the importance of commodification and consumption of animals in shaping um, modern mortuary animal rights? Um, Yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, uh, phenomenon that these animal memorial rituals arise during a time period when we really see much greater commodification of animals. And some people might be very cynic and say, oh, then ultimately... um, these rituals are not very sincere and they don't really mean anything. They're just there as sort of window dressing. Well, I don't, I think that doesn't really do them justice. I actually thought they were extremely uh, instructive. Uh, they don't necessarily um, suggest to us as some uh, Japanese uniqueness theory <laughs> uh, scholars would, would perhaps argue that the Japanese um are particularly animal friendly and that they care about animals more than other people in the world. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily what they teach us, but what it, uh, what they perhaps tell us is that people are struggling with the commodification. How do you deal with this commodification? If you think about some of the, um, uh, mechanized, um, use of animals, the mechanized killing of animals is actually quite bloody. Uh, in this country and elsewhere in the world, including Japan. So how do you make sense of these realities when you have traditions that suggest to you that you should treat animals as living beings and that you should respect them, but yet you do kill them? So how do you make sense of that? And I think I liked uh, Jonathan Z. Smith's idea that rituals can serve to sort of mediate between the tensions of uh, sort of an ideal and then actual practice. And I think once you look at these rituals in that way, then um, you don't necessarily need to be completely cynical about them, but you also don't need to be overly idealistic about them either. Um, and the one example that I like uh, a lot is the example of um, whale memorial rituals. And these were some of the earliest ones that, um, that we know of uh, in history. And what is really interesting is that these rituals emerge during a time period when we really see increased whaling, active whaling practices in Japan. And uh, for one thing, uh, we see that in the early modern period, um, the Japanese developed a new method that didn't just uh, harvest beached whales, dying whales that had drifted to the shore, which it did in earlier centuries. But they actually went out actively to catch whales with nets and then um, use lances to, or harpoons, um, to kill the whale. Um, And this is around the time period when we first see the first emergence of rituals such as this. And then... uh, 
the rituals and evidence of these rituals increase as there is increased contact with the United States in regards to whaling. We should not forget that the United States at the time in the, in the 19th century, um, and probably also the, um, the, uh, uh, earlier that they, um, were really, uh, the, the country in the world that was, uh, relying the most on whaling. I believe in the, it was the fifth largest, yeah, that's <laughs> drinking from, from a, a, from a cup Ahab. that says, says Captain Ahab, <laughs> right? It was the, I think over, uh, in, in the United States, it was the, f- um, fifth largest industry and in New England, it was the third largest industry. And it basically uh, oiled the industrial revolution in the United States, all the, the whale oil. Mm-hmm. Before the discovery of fossil fuels, so um, so you had all these um, American whalers that were um, ending up in Japanese waters and whaling in in Japanese waters, mm-hmm. and because of this, um, you have a an increased encounter with uh, whale carcasses that the Americans usually just they didn't unlike the Japanese they didn't use the whole entire whale they usually just wanted the blubber and in case of sperm whales also the spermaceta so what they would usually do is they would harvest this for instance strip off the blubber like you would peel an orange and then dump the rest remaining carcass into the sea so that might drift to Japanese shores they would also fish a lot of or just take a lot of whales out of these Japanese waters so that would drive whale populations down. And so some of these whaling communities in Japan were really uh, experienced a lot of um, uh, experiencing a lot of uh, financial instability de- depending on on the year, whether they could get good catches. But they were also adopting certain whaling methods from the Americans first and then later from the Norwegians that were more and more mechanized. So during this time period when they're adopting more mechanized forms of whaling, we again see sort of this a bump in, in evidence that they were uh, conducting whale memorial rites. So I think that this was sort of an interesting example how shifting technologies and increasing commodifications of animals and the outcomes of this commodification, for instance, depletion of populations, um, and, and greater demand for, for the, these animal products. Um, drove the growth in, in animal memorial rights for whales. Mm-hmm. And you could show other animals where, where uh, similar um, uh, things occurred. For instance, you could also look at, I, I think in that chapter, I look a little bit at bears mm-hmm. um, and they're interested in, in bears as basically a materia medica that really went up in the early modern period because more people could consume uh, this particular substance. It wasn't just limited to uh, just the elites, but more people were interested in using these kinds of substances. And, and all of a sudden, you have increased hunting and greater depletion and the emergence of bear memorial rights right around the same time. Thank you. And this chapter also includes, and I'll just mention it for listeners, mm. alongside treatment of whales and bear memorials, discussions of the importance as well of memorial rituals emerging out of circumstances of the increased consumption and commodification mm. of animals in the context of military um, military use and military contexts, uh, not just um, whaling, but also other kinds of industrialized fishing and other food industries. So you talk about um, fugu release and fish memorials and sushi memorials, contexts of uh, research and educational facilities as well. So there are discussions here for people interested in um, laboratory animals mm. and ab- animal 
animals used in scientific research and also memorials for animals at zoos. So there's a lot of really interesting different kinds of sites where we see these practices and these um, tendencies emerging, which brings us to the context specifically of pets. So we've been talking about animals more broadly. Pet memorials, as you mentioned here and as you emphasize, are really different. And one of the things that we'll see that makes this particular set of cases that we'll now talk about for the rest of our conversation um, really different and, and really imp importantly different from what we've been talking about is that you mentioned the importance of a very individualized and personalized discourse around pet memorials. It's very, very different from the kind of more utilitarian and ideological discourse that surrounds the kinds of memorials that we've been talking about for bears or whales or even horses, um, things like that. So here, this brings us to um, the third through fifth chapters and then into the conclusion of the book, which really focus on some really interesting ethnographic um, experiences and reflections and um, analyses from the more contemporary um, kind of context. So to get there, um, one of the chapters in the book, chapter three, focuses on legal controversies around the taxation of, of animal memorial rights. So this was, I'm just going to you know, put it on the table. I loved this chapter. This was <laughs> totally fascinating. I, had, I hadn't even thought of the possibility of using legal records in this way. And it raises really, really interesting issues about um, the kinds of sort of boundary crossing and boundary making and comparisons. What kinds of, what do you compare pets too and pet remains and memorials too and how does that define our categories in all you know in all of the in terms of all the items being compared so all these things come up so this chapter focuses on two cases between 2004 and 2008 that each raise the issue of whether pet memorials were religious activities and were tax exempt um, in that context. So what I'll ask you to do um, is talk a little bit about these cases, and then we can talk about the larger context that's informing them. Okay, so the two, well, the first case you look at um, is in a temple called Jim Yoin. Okay, can you describe um, what's going on there? Sort of what kinds of services are happening in that temple? Um, and what's what's happening in terms of the, the development of the case? about taxation in that temple. So can you talk about that case for us? Um, so perhaps to set it up, um, uh, as you mentioned, I uh, make the argument that pet memorial rights seem to be quite different from other animal memorial rights. And the thing is that animal memorial rights in general, if they're conducted in a corporate context especially, they're usually much more communal and they are linked to sort of uh, sacralizing a, uh, an industrial work ethic. And pet memorial rights, on the other hand, are very much focused on the individual or the family um, and this relationship that the family or an individual had with their pet. And pet ownership in general in Japan, but also in other places, is often depicted as wasteful and somewhat parasitic and, um, and selfish. And so these one, uh, so the animal memorial rights celebrate this industrial work ethic and, and, um, not necessarily celebrating the killing of animals, but making sense of the killing of animals in an industrial world. And here you have these pets who are also commodities, and we should not forget this, who are also commodities, but they seem to be consumed by an individual, and then in people's minds, they don't contribute very much to society. 
So um, add to this, this idea that has emerged in the late 20th century, and perhaps it's been around even longer, that somehow Buddhist temples and, and other religious institutions are perhaps not just contributing to society, but they, that they um, enjoy special privileges, including tax exemption. And that the, perhaps um, some of these institutions might be too wealthy and reaping too much benefit from certain kind of services that they carry out. And so the pet memorial rituals seem to be an easy target to get temples or, or religious institutions um, to pay back, literally pay back to, to society by paying taxes. Mm-hmm. And um, so this temple um, that was involved in the first case that involved income taxes uh, what is a small temple that doesn't really have much of a temple parish where you have regular parishioners who have their family grave at the temple and, uh, and carry out regular rituals. But it was a small temple that didn't really have a whole lot of income. And um, at some point, the uh, abbot decided um, that he wanted to install a crematorium and offer uh, pet memorial um, rights. And um, then with changes, legal changes that happened in the wake of the Om Shindikyo incident um, uh, that happened in the mid-90s where a, um, a religious group released sarin gas in, in the Tokyo subway system. And that really brought to a head uh, this... Um, the I think people who were um, suspicious of religion to begin with and who wanted greater oversight and perhaps um, also financial oversight by the state over religious organizations. They revised um, some of the legislation regarding uh, financials. And so now all of a sudden these uh, religious institutions had to give very detailed records of the assets and of the income to the tax uh, agency. And so in the wake of this, uh, eventually... Um, the uh, tax agency decided to go after this temple and asking for uh, retroactive tax payments over several years on uh, these pet memorial rituals, arguing that these were actually not uh, religious in, in nature, but that they did not were not protected by the same kind of laws that protect human funerals. But they were also that they were also, and this is interesting, different from uh, memorial rituals for other animals and memorial rituals for inanimate objects. And um, that because pet memorial rituals were special and um, and they were not protected from taxation like human funerals, they should be paying taxes. And they made this very complicated argument that basically involves the Japanese equivalent of um, taxation of unrelated business activities um, that you also see here in the United States. There are certain business activities that uh, religious organizations can engage in, but they have to pay taxes on it. Say, if a, I, I would think if a, a church started running a travel agency, um, they would probably have to pay taxes on that. And uh, similar kinds of laws exist in Japan, and there are actually 34 um, activities that uh, require religious organizations to pay income tax at a reduced rate. And these include things such as retail, contracting, and providing storage facilities. And these were the three things that were used by the courts to basically demand uh, that the temple pay income tax. To give you one quick example, for instance, uh, animal remains in Japan are treated as waste. So um, uh, um, 
domestic animals, large domestic animals such as horses, cows, sheep, pigs, and goat, they fall under special laws. They're treated as industrial waste. Everything else is considered just waste, regular waste. And um, that means, whereas human bodies have special legislation, you need to get a special permit to dispose of a human body, an animal body is trash. So they said, well, ultimately then what this temple is providing um, by having animal graves is a trash storage facility. Now that may seem kind of strange, a strange argument, but this is kind of how they use this law to say you're, you're providing a storage facility for trash, for objects, and therefore that falls under one of these 34 activities and therefore you have to pay taxes. And you could, and they made similar arguments with some of the other things, such as, for instance, contracting. They said, uh, "Well, you probably you basically put out a pay scale that's on your internet site, and you give a pamphlet to people that says it precisely how much what kind of service is worth." In the case of human funerals, this does not happen. Uh, as a footnote, everyone knows or has ways of finding out how much you should pay a Buddhist priest when they do certain kind of things at a funeral. Uh, and pet memorial rights are somewhat new. People don't know, and then it also depends on the size of the animal because humans usually come mostly in a, in a certain range of sizes, right? But with with uh, pets, they really they range from very very tiny and small, from hamsters and and parakeets to really large chocolate labs. So they have different kinds of prices attached to the cremation and also to the size of grave that you use, and. Um, so they said, well, you publish this pay scale, then ultimately what you're engaging in is contracting. Mm-hmm. So, so it was a complicated legal argument. And uh, the, to make a long story short, the courts um, uh, decided that the tax agency uh, was right and um, the temple ha- was forced to pay income tax. And um, even though they don't have precedent law in Japan now, all the other temples usually also pay income tax because they're afraid that they would be dragged to court. Now, this is actually different from what happened at the other temple, um, yeah. who, the, the case that you looked at. So can what were the differences there? So, um, so the other temple uh, is a temple that's uh, found in Tokyo. It has a really long history going back into the early modern period of animal memorial rituals. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a temple called Ekoin. And uh, when this uh, case in uh, the vicinity of Nagoya was uh, making its way through the Japanese legal system, the tax agency in Tokyo decided that they could also go after a coin because it's a really well-known temple to offer pet memorial rights, that they could go after this temple and charge them property taxes on top of income tax. And... um, uh, the thing is that regarding property taxes, that involves a different kind of legislation. And um, if Japanese religious organizations become incorporated, um, they have to state uh, their mission. And all the activities that fall under their original mission um, or their religious mission um, they can carry these out in their buildings and don't have to pay property taxes on the precinct, say, um, of the religious institution. 
And the uh, tax agency said, well, you're conducting these pet memorial rites and they don't seem to be a religious uh, uh, activity. So if you're using part of your precinct, in fact, part of your precinct is dedicated to these only these rituals, that would seem that you have to pay taxes, property taxes on that segment of the precinct that you're having these rituals. And the um, a coin, they had picked a temple that had a really long history. They had started uh, doing animal memorial rituals before they ever became incorporated after World War II. So they had actually a pretty easy case of showing that that was part of their original mission. So they, because the legal um, argument was slightly different, they were able to win this case. So now... Um, they seem to be paying income tax, but they don't have to pay property taxes. So it's slightly different. And it also helps that the abbot uh, of the temple, before he became a Buddhist priest, before he became the abbot, he was a tax accountant. So he uh. knew the legal, <laughs> the legal background really well. So they had picked the wrong man. Um, uh, that's, I, this is actually, this is not only... Um, you mentioned in the discussion of the first case that this case actually set an important precedent for mm. under, for working through some of these issues mm. later, but it seems to me also that the analysis in this chapter of using legal records and tax records in particular mm. to look at religious history um, and sort of the anthropology of religion itself sets a precedent. I mean, mm. I, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in this field, mm. but it seems to me that there's, um, this offers a kind of model or a way forward for a lot of scholars um, who might not think of using these kinds of sources to do work on religious history or religious studies. So I think this is um, just fascinating in terms of research methodology as well as fascinating in terms of the way you're getting at um, working out of these concepts and categories and boundaries through I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it had not occurred to me that that was particularly unique. Um, you know, my my previous book was on the early modern period, and a lot of uh, 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 historians like me, we often look at legal cases when we because we don't have much else. So mm -hmm. often uh, at disputes and legal cases mm -hmm. to tell a story about particular religious institutions and about religion in early modern Japan. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to make complete sense to me to also look at these legal cases in Japan uh, during the contemporary period mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and do something very similar that I would have done, say, in in uh, a book about early modern Japan. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I thought it was awesome. <laughs> well, thank so, you. so we move, um, as we move through the book, we move from here to a chapter that looks at the necrography Necrography. Necrogeography. Necrogeography of, of mortuary spaces for pets. So how were pets excluded or included in the necrol landscapes of Japan? And these necrol landscapes takes, take various different forms. So you're looking at these landscapes in the cases of cemeteries, in the home, um, and beyond. So one of the things that you're arguing here, um, or one of one of the kinds of phenomena that you look at, are, is the ways that boundaries in these landscapes of death are observed, especially strictly when it comes to pets. And actually, even though we tend to be thinking about pets, and we've been talking about pets in terms of these boundary straddlers, these sort of um, these entities and con conceptual and physical. Uh, individuals or things, beings that tend to help us challenge our boundaries. What actually happens here that you're showing is the boundaries are reinforced 
um, between species in the context of working out of a space in these necro, necro, necro geographical, geographical spaces. Okay. All right. So there are three kinds of cases that you focus on in this chapter. Um, and I'll ask you just to talk a little bit about um, these cases, just as, you know, as much as you want, however you want. You talk a lot about in here the choice between burial and cremation of pet remains. Can you speak a little bit to that um, as it comes out in this chapter? Sort of what's interesting to you about that? I think if we are looking at um, contemporary pet memorial rituals and pet funerals in Japan, um, nowadays it would be very easy to assume that cremations of animals were the standard always. Well, just like human cremation, um, if you look at it historically, it's really, uh, even in Japan, as a widespread and standard practice, really a modern phenomenon. And um, uh, previously, you see a lot more intact burials and debates about whether or not humans should be cremated or, or uh, be buried intact. And you work on China, I bet there were similar kinds of debates, um, uh, mm -hmm. whether that's actually a right thing to do to, to cremate the body, whether you're destroying something, whether you're being filial, for instance, by cremating uh, or, or destroying your body or the, that of your parents. So, um, so in the, in the Japanese case, really the cremations of animals didn't really become standard until really quite late. Mm -hmm. And um, before that, you really had only intact burial. And um, so even now, you see some of the debates that perhaps happened a little earlier with human uh, cremation sort of being played out in, in the case of animals. And there are some people who uh, seem to think that pets are animals, non-human animals, and as non-human animals, they are closer to nature, whatever that might mean to you. And um, so then they say, because they're closer to nature, quote unquote, they should also be uh, buried in a natural, quote unquote, way. So that means uh, you should bury them intact. Um, but that raises all kinds of issues. You might have this ideal but how do you do that in a highly urbanized Japan when most people live in apartments and don't own land anymore where they can actually bury their pet? Mm -hmm. Beside, your city might have certain kind of regulations regarding pet burial, depending on the animal size. And whether you own that land or not, you can't just go and, and bury it in a public park or on somebody else's property. It's mm -hmm. probably not going to be allowed. So you're kind of stuck. And the one thing that really helps in an urban environment is that you cremate the animal. Mm -hmm. Now, that raises all kinds of interesting questions. Um, starting really in the late 20th century, you, you see, uh, you, or after the war, really, when pet ownership becomes more and more common and, um, and increasingly toward the end of the 20th century, Pets are really not just outside the home. They are taken in the into the home. They're living with people in the home. And this is really interesting. This is a little side story, but uh, there's a terrific book on uh, the history of pet keeping in the United States by uh, Catherine Greer. And she makes this very interesting argument that the shift uh, from keeping animals outside the home, at least during part of the year, to keeping them inside the home all year round, really, you can attribute that to the rise in, or the development of flea medications. 
solve flea treatment is sort of the big thing. So that makes it possible to even in this hot summer months when a, a dog or a cat would be infested with fleas previously, now you can keep them flea free so they can come inside. Um, I don't know if this is the same for Japan. Perhaps uh, it's the development of taking pets into the home other than really small animals like, say, a cat. They keep an indoor cat or a small lap dog, but larger dogs also into the home. Um, and so people then, once they're used to living with their, their pets in the home, some of them would also like to be buried with their pets because they kind of want to continue this close emotional and intimate physical bond into the afterlife. And what was interesting to me is that initially uh, you, you, I encountered a lot of people who were saying, oh, that's just not possible if it's a Buddhist temple. They would never do that, and it's not allowed. And it seemed to be sort of borne out when I first started my field work, uh, and other scholars have talked about it, but then when you actually started investigating a little bit, you found that people had all kinds of ingenious strategies of making it happen somehow. Um, so on the one hand, there's this desire to keep uh, humans and non-human animals separate in the necro landscape. And then there are also others who really would like that separation to disappear and they want that intimacy. They kind of uh, would see that these are family members mm -hmm. and they're family members who they're particularly intimate with. Mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't want to preserve this intimacy. So um, they, they found all kinds of ingenious ways of actually doing this, like, even at some Buddhist temples. Like what, what were some of those ingenious ways? Um, uh, one thing is for instance, that, um, uh, uh, cemeteries in, in Japan, they either have to be run by municipalities or they have to be uh, operated by uh, religious institutions. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a private cemetery that's um, operated by a company or managed by a company, they have a nominal affiliation with usually with a Buddhist uh, or temple uh, or, uh, or another religious institution of the sort. And it is those... Uh, cemeteries that are really private cemeteries that often started uh, seeing this as a business opportunity and they sometimes offered special sections of their cemetery where people could be buried uh, with their pets. Mm -hmm. Then there were cases that I encountered uh, of Buddhist temples where they um, used, uh, for instance, uh, contemporary innovations um, and uh, the fact that people had moved from away from their uh, hometown so in another part of Japan, moved to an urban environment, and when they died, wanted to be buried in this in, in the urban context at, an, at a new temple, and they were establishing their own graves, and in many cases, not just a grave, but uh, say they would purchase a space in a columbarium, so a building that would house the remains and have perhaps a small altar in the building of the temple. So these are new graves, and they are a different form or a different shape, and some temples uh, adopt that, that kind of a setting where they don't have to deal with the questions of, you know, um, I have all my ancestors in this grave and I can't really ask the dead ancestors to give me an answer on whether or not I can put my dog in there. Mm -hmm. I might offend this ancestor who actually hated dogs <laughs> uh, and, and, and so forth. That is not an issue if you are setting up your own grave. And if you have one of these columbarium spaces, they often just they look like little altars mm -hmm. and they may not even have... Uh, 
an easily identifiable marker outside that this gray, this little space contains both human and non-human cremains. Mm -hmm. So it won't offend anyone else who's buried to the left and right and their families. Right. Um, so, so that was one way of doing it. Another uh, case that I found is where the uh, abbot of the temple went around to ask all, I, bet, I guess it was about 600 member households, parish households, ask every one of them whether it be okay to have these joint burials and got permission from each one of them. And so then they started allowing it in their cemetery, but they would not mark the fact that the um, pet would be buried in that grave. So you, it would be buried in there, but it wouldn't be marked physically on the gravestone. Mm -hmm. Another uh, idea was to develop these special urns. The, um, this is a, uh, a temple in Kyoto that started a, an urn business where they uh, produce urns that are in the shape of the animal. They have pre sort of prefabricated urns in the shape of specific breeds, mm -hmm. but you can also send in a photograph and they make a custom-made model uh, of your dog or cat. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then it's carved into stone, and then there's a small um, space in the bottom where you could put uh, basically processed ashes, so not bones because it's only a small compartment the size of a cup or something. So you can put a few ashes down there. And these are so heavy that uh, some Buddhist temples in the Tokyo area started allowing the placement of these heavy urns on top of the family grave. So when the connection with the animal is no longer there, you could easily, if you really wanted to, you could probably remove it. And the disposal of it would be pretty easy because it's not inside the grave. So, um, so there were all kinds of ways that people started making it happen. It's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. So as we move to... Um Toward the end of our time, I don't want to let you go without yeah. just saying a little bit about the final body chapter okay. of the text. And so um, as we move to the final body chapter, this looks at the debate over the afterlives mm -hmm. of animals and their spirits, in particular of pets and their spirits. And uh, it's really an interesting set of sources mm -hmm. in this chapter, too, including um, you're, you're looking at, or you mentioned that you looked at sermons, interviews with Buddhist clerics and clients at pet cemeteries, which is actually really interesting because, I, again, I'll, I'll just kind of mention this for listeners. One of the interesting problems that comes up is how Buddhist clerics interpret scripture mm -hmm. um, in to try to get at um, what... Uh, or how to interpret scripture in light of changing ideas of pets that may not be sort of in the scripture itself. And so how do you read scripture in light of these changing circumstances regarding pets? You're looking at publications by popular psychics as well and internet chat rooms. So um, what I want to, uh, you, you're looking at um, a lot of, um, or a number of issues here that are interesting in terms of um, Buddhist ideas of transmigration, rebirth, salvation, notions about unsettled, vengeful spirits versus sort of benign, um, protective spirits, popular ideas of heaven, and then also, interestingly, the, in, the influence of spiritualist and psychological notions from the field of pet loss therapy, which, which brings in, I think, a really interesting dimension here. So what I want to ask you just to kind of finish up this part of, of the conversation before we sort of close up, you're showing here that there's actually a transformation when you're looking at the ideas and work of um, the kinds of people who are alternately called spiritualists or clairvoyants in this context. And there's a transformation 
that you're showing here. Between uh, the 1990s, where spiritualists are initially conceiving of pet memorial rites in terms of ways to appease potentially vengeful spirits, and more recent um, attitudes which are more inclined to assume or think of the afterlives of pets, pet spirits, as being potentially benign and protective spirits. So can you talk a little bit about this literature and this transformation um, and anything that you found particularly engaging about the process of working with these sources and then with this kind of set of phenomena? Um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was really interesting when I surveyed some, some of the available literature including very sort of popular publications on the issue of pet spirits. Uh, ultimately, you wonder, so if you have memorial rights, there has to be some reason why you would want to have this memorial right. Mm -hmm. um, so what are the underpinnings, the, the um, say, the doctrinal underpinnings for this? Or the uh, what is the benefit that this right is supposed to have other than, say, uh, grief management? Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I started looking at some early publications that data back to the early 1990s, and which was a time period, by the way, when there was a really great interest in vengeful spirits. This was a time when you had what some people call the occult boom in Japan, um, uh, and people were really concerned with um, making sure that spirits wouldn't come back to haunt you. This was sort of the big argument given. Now, Buddhist priests usually did not necessarily embrace this idea at all. They would often deny it, even early on. But some of the spiritualists and clairvoyants were really um, very much in favor of this kind of uh, background to um, pet memorial rights. And then when I started looking at more recent publications, I, I, I got the sense that that was not the way that people talked about pet memorial rights anymore. And there was a much greater sense of saying, well, these animals are your partners, your companions, and you want to nurture and maintain this relationship in the afterlife. So rather than making them go away, you actually wanted to keep them here with you so that they could, you could have this permanent relationship with them. <laughs> and, um, and as you said, one of the, big uh, uh, influences that I identified was the influence of pet loss literature. And I think a lot of people who have um, done cremations in this country, a lot of crematorias and <clears throat> pet cremation services in this country use the story of the rainbow bridge that they often give out as a little certificate or um, there's often a reference somewhere of a little rainbow. And it's this poem that basically suggests that uh, animals or pets, when they die, they go to this paradisiacal place that's uh, a meadow under a, a a rainbow, and they're all there together, playing together, even animals that normally don't get along. So all the cats and dogs and hamsters and birds are playing with each <laughs> other. And um, and then one day, your pet who's been playing in this meadow for a long time, suddenly its ears will perk up and it'll start uh, looking to the horizon. And there you are, you've just died, and it'll run up to you and it'll greet you and it'll be so happy. And then you're both... Uh, pass into heaven crossing over the rainbow bridge. So, uh, in this, this particular concept of the rainbow bridge became popular all around the world it, through the internet. It was translated into so many different languages. Uh, and it sounds kind of saccharine and silly, but it seemed to help a lot of people mm -hmm. when they were going through grief 
and loss. Mm -hmm. So uh, somehow it also made its way to Japan, and there were lots of publications based on this. Um, and it's also percolated into um, some of the practices at these sites that I looked at, um, where, for instance, at one place they had uh, at a Buddhist temple a memorials uh, marker that was titled the Rainbow Bridge Memorial Marker. And uh, so it had a, a little uh, rainbow, and under the rainbow is the Buddha seated underneath it, and then they put all these statues of animals around it. Uh, another um, cleric that I interviewed in fact, he was one of my, my favorites. Uh, his name is Yokota. And uh, he wrote a whole book that uh, on um, animals and how to deal with uh, pet loss. And he's very much engaged in the Japanese Pet Loss Society. Uh, and he trains other Buddhist priests and people who offer pet memorial services uh, and pet funerals. Um, and he... he uh, uh, he wrote this book, and he also draws very much on this concept of the Rainbow Bridge. So it's really, um, I think the discourse is really shifting. It's not that nobody talks about vengeful spirits anymore. That's still out there, but it's becoming less and less and less appealing, I think, and less uh, uh, of a way to advertise what it is that you are doing and why you should have memorial rituals. And the other thing is, I think, also... Uh, I sense that there was also some hesitation immediately after the Om Shinikyo incidents happened. People got really suspicious of religion. That's some in the in recent years that has uh, shifted again a little bit. Um, but especially initially, some of the spiritualists that had been very popular and been on TV, like Gibo Aiko, for instance, uh, they disappeared from television. People got really kind of wary of anything, any um, person, whether religious or spiritual who started promoting anything particularly threatening. So the new brand of spiritualists that were on TV, uh, such as, for instance, Ehara Hiroyuki, they were presenting a vision of the afterlife and of a spiritual world that was far less threatening and, and vengeful than what some of the earlier generation had presented. Um, and again, really stressing in the case of pets, the idea of a partnership rather than some potential haunting and, and, you know, that you could get sick and have certain kind of, uh, ailments and misfortune if you didn't do the rituals in the correct way or something like that. It was much more individualized, personalized, um, and less sort of, um, prescriptive. Yeah. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for taking sure. the time. There's a lot that we talked about in the book, but there's also a lot that we didn't talk about in the book, including um, material in the epilogue, which looks at Hachiko, the dog, as a symbol of loyalty. And there's, there's a lot of material in um, in the last part of the book, but also in chapters that we've talked about that we didn't get to. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention about the book that you feel is important, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read it? Oh, that's a difficult question because I have so much to choose from. Well, uh, perhaps not so much about the the book per se or any issue in the book. But one thing that um, I'm hoping that people who read the book won't do is to assume that it's very um, uh, 
uniquely Japanese. In a way, it is uh, the particular context and the particular arrangement of practices that we see is very distinct. But you see similar kinds of developments toward memorialization of animals and, and pets in other places around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, here in Raleigh, there is somebody who um, serves as a pet chaplain. Huh. Uh, in other places, in I think in the New, New York area, there are two churches, uh, one in New Jersey, one in Staten Island, uh, Episcopal churches that have pet cemeteries on church grounds. Mm -hmm. And the uh, oldest pet cemetery in the country, the Hartsdale uh, Pet Cemetery in, in Westchester, I believe, I don't know if it's still the case, but a, a couple of years ago when I last checked, uh, there was actually um, an Episcopal uh, uh, minister uh, who didn't have a congregation and his only job is to conduct uh, memorial rituals for pets wow. at this at this Westchester at this pet cemetery in Westchester wow. and uh, uh, some of the uh, um, uh, uh, ministers that I interviewed here in the United States what is interesting is that they often conduct rituals depending on the religious affiliations and wishes of their clients. So that means even if they're uh, an Episcopal minister, they will still perform a, a Jewish style funeral um, for the pet if the clients are Jewish and want something that's more in the Jewish tradition. And it's usually follows something that's slightly different from the human, even in the Christian style ceremony. Um, but, but they do have some sort of religiously inspired um, Rituals. Now, it's not usually this institutionalized. You don't have as many churches involved in this as you have Buddhist temples involved in pet funerals. Um, but you do have, uh, um, when you really uh, look at it, uh, a lot of internet activity and and um, new agey type of ceremonies that are being developed in the United States. So I wouldn't just say it's a phenomenon that's totally unique to Japan. I think it's a general global trend. Uh, you see a rise in pet cemeteries as people in urban areas have to deal with uh, legal circumstances that they cannot just bury, for instance, an intact pet in their in their yard if they have one if they live in apartments they often turn to cremation so there i think there are a lot of similarities that are not just um uh peculiar to japan and now that the book is out and congratulations on thank the book, you what's next for you what project or projects are inspiring you at the moment um, I'm working on, on several different projects, but they all have something to do with uh, gender and Japanese religions. I'm working on a book on women in Japanese religions, and I'm also working on another Buddhist ceremonial uh, that has something to do with gender on a ritual called the Anankoshiki, and I'm looking at it in uh, it's some of its historical development, but I'm also looking at it at the contemporary period and the particular performance of it. So, well, thank you. Best of luck in thank your you. current work, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. A pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>